Um, man, it's a pleasure uh, to be here uh, because we've actually tried to do this a couple of times uh, and it's fallen through. Um, so I'm super stoked to be here with you this morning uh, to see some more of the extended City Church family, my City Church family. That's how I see you guys. Um, and uh, we've actually got a cracking passage to look at this morning. Um, I want to dig uh, quickly and get, and get stuck into it because uh, I want to see if we can get to grips with this ancient text uh, uh, as it brings some meaning to our lives in 21st century Bristol. Um, people make claims all the time uh, and then either do or do not back them up with their actions. Prince Nassim Hamed, who remembers him? Prize British boxer from back in the day. And he said, before his big fight in 2001 with the Mexican Antonio Barrera, he said, I've got too much power for that boy. I've got too much speed for that boy. And I'm going to prove it tonight that I am the best featherweight in the whole world. You see, he was from Yorkshire. But he had this bit of a sort of cockney wide boy thing going on. And believe it or not, that was a really good impression of him that I just did for you. Uh, <laughs> now, of course, he went on. Thank you very much. Uh, now, of course, he went on and promptly lost. <laughs> um, and he was never the same fighter ever again. Um, in a somewhat similar vein, uh, long ago, I made friends with a guy. He jumped from quite decent job to decent job, never staying anywhere longer than about a year. And it's because he would just flat out lie on his application form <laughs> about his various skills and capabilities, uh, making all sorts of claims about what he could do. And then he'd spend months blagging it because he really had the gift of the gab. Um, and then, of course, eventually it all come close to him being fined out. He'd hand his notice in, thank them, and move on to his next set of claims. He was all claims, um, no action really in his job to back them up. You see, we can, we can often tell, can't we, who someone is by how their words relate to their actions. We can tell that Nazim Hamed was not the best in the world because his actions didn't match his words or that my friend was some skillful manager of whatever because his actions didn't back up his claims. Now, the consequence, of course, of, of actions not matching up with words is that it damages trust. We, we, we struggle to trust someone who shows a lack of integrity like that. We've lost trust in many of our politicians, have we not? Because they can claim all sorts of things that rarely seem to then match up to their actions. Words and actions have to line up for us to be able to trust the claims that, well, people, especially leaders, make. In the church, of course, sadly, we've had many recent highly publicized scandals involving various Christian leaders and Christian celebrities, people whose actions were not matching up to their words. And of course, these leaders, they become almost definitions of a lack of integrity, of being fake. And we hate that, don't we? We all hate to see a lack of integrity in our leaders, no matter where they operate. So the problem for us nowadays is that we as a, as a nation, as a people, even as churchgoers, 
are pretty disillusioned with some leaders, many leaders in some instances, that call us to follow them when we have so many who are supposed role models, people who we should be able to trust, and then we see them just losing it, just blowing it, just go into the zoo. So it's only natural for us when we come to look at Jesus in our passage today, as someone who calls us to follow him with our lives, remember, to ask the question, well, is Jesus someone of integrity? Is he someone who backs up his words with his actions? Is he for real or is he just another fake? And now these are the same questions, of course, that the people of Jesus' time were asking of him. They were trying to work that out too. And for many of us who are thinking about faith, that can be the question we're asking ourselves 2,000 years later. Was Jesus just a charismatic bloke from a long time ago or someone much more important? So let's read our passage today and we'll uh, dig into these questions. So we're in, we're in Mark, Mark chapter 2. Uh, Right from the beginning, we've got Jesus heals the paralytic. I'm reading from the ESV here, guys. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when he could not get near him because of the crowd... They removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit, that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Amen. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, And I pray, Holy Spirit, that as we study it this morning, would you speak into our hearts the truth that you would have us live by. Each one of us here. Lord, that my words would be your words and that we would all have ears to hear and hearts to receive this morning. Amen. In our 21st century context, we tend to focus on the miraculous healing when we read this passage. And whilst it's obviously important for Mark, who who wrote this, uh, and Matthew and Luke, of course, who also included this encounter in their Gospels, their focus is not actually on the healing itself, but rather on what it says about who Jesus is. 
The healing, if you like, is accessory evidence to illustrate what they really want us to know about Jesus and who he claims to be. Now, the difficulty with us understanding all of this passage is, as is often the case, of course, when we read in the Bible, you and I, we are not first century Israelites. Although if we're more hipster, we might have the beards. And so we don't get some of the implications of the claim that Jesus makes in this encounter. Now, I want you to picture the scene. So Jesus is teaching. It's crowded, right? Because he's the hottest ticket in town right now. And the Pharisees, who are always trying to catch him out, uh, they're front row watching the extraordinary scene unfold. Now, so Jesus is talking. And then something falls from the roof. Some of the ceiling falls from the roof. Okay, and it's distracting. It's like when, uh, well, it's like, like when someone's teaching uh, and something starts going on in the room, a distraction. Maybe you haven't stood up in front of a group of people like this, okay, and, and talked like this. But sometimes if a distraction happens, someone starts creating a ruckus, then guess what? People's heads start turning, they're looking, and you start losing people. I wonder how long... Jesus carried on talking for, with four dudes starting to pull up the roof above him. And at some point, he must have just gone, let's all just wait and see what happens, shall we? <laughs> but eventually, the man lands on his mat in front of Jesus. Now, we would expect, he would say, oh, paralysis. Yep, I can deal with that. And he'd do a healing, and we'd all go, whoa, this Jesus, he's no fake, right? He's straight up and down. He's, his actions are matching his words. He says he can heal, and then he does. But he doesn't just claim that he can heal and then deliver on the goods, as impressive as that would be. He actually claims something totally off the deep end. He claims the impossible. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. What is he claiming that's impossible? Okay, remember, as I've mentioned, we here in 21st century Bristol, we react totally differently to how that crowd of people would have reacted to such a claim by Jesus. It goes over our heads. You know, you and I, when we hear, son, your sins are forgiven, we do a sort of scooby-doo, you know, like a dog hearing a high-pitched whistle. It was just a bit confusing. It seems a strange thing to say. But saying that... To the people gathered around Jesus 2,000 years ago, especially the Pharisees, I guarantee you, in that moment, all of Jesus' disciples, they went, ruh Jesus has gone about as big as you can go here. Because the Pharisees, who know their scriptures, they know that it says it's only God who can forgive sins. We just read it, verse 7. This is blasphemy. Blasphemy in this culture, remember, is claiming to be God. I can almost hear the disciples saying, what are you doing, Jesus? You could have, you could have hit the hole in one of claiming that you can heal paralysis and then done it, and everybody would all be so impressed, they'd be quite happy to follow you. Why are you claiming to do something that only God can do? Jesus are you claiming to be God now? And here, of course, 
the age-old problem looms large. Leaders making claims that they cannot fulfill. Actions not matching up to their words. Uh, what's the lyric? Uh, people writing checks that their derriere can't cash. And Jesus has just made the biggest claim that there is. That he isn't just a bloke. That he's God. And then there's another difficulty. Like, how do we even check Jesus' claim? How can we know if someone's sins are forgiven? There's a theologian called uh, Nolland. He recently retired, I believe, from Trinity College here in Bristol, uh, as I was researching this. And he pointed out, anyone can say, your sins are forgiven. That does not make them forgiven. The problem is there can be no proof that a person's sins are forgiven or not. But in, and here's the kicker, you see, in Jesus' setting, oh, that's not strictly true. And here's why. What we need to understand is that there was the common belief amongst the people of Jesus' time that illnesses like paralysis were linked to the sin in one's life. Uh, for example, in the Netherim, the rabbinical writings, one rabbi here, Bar Abba, don't you know, he wrote, a sick person does not recover from his ailment before all of his sins are forgiven. And then he quotes Psalm 103, verse 3. Who forgives all your sins? Who heals all your diseases? There it is again. Only God forgives sins. So, when Jesus says to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven, we, not being first century Israelites, totally miss the import of his words. Because we don't know stuff like this. So we'd think something like, uh, Jesus his mates have brought him along uh, not to get his sins forgiven, but to get his legs back, yeah? <laughs> but a first century Israelite thinks sin, the wrong things people do in life, is linked to their illness and suffering, like being paralyzed. And only God for can forgive sins. So if Jesus says to a paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, and then said man jumps up from his pallet and walks off, well, not only is it clear evidence to the religious leaders and basically everybody there that the man is healed, and so therefore his sins have been forgiven, but then they also have to face up to the ridiculous, mind-boggling, unfathomable to them reality that what? Bingo. Jesus is God. Jesus has just made the most impossible claim and then done exactly what he had to do to back it up for them. Actions and words. It's such a clear statement by Jesus with his actions megaphoning in their faces, like way louder than just words could do, to the assembled everybody that he is the Christ. He is the Emmanuel they're all waiting for. Emmanuel means God with us. And this is why the focus isn't on the miraculous healing. It's accessory evidence to show Jesus is who he is claiming to be. The gospel writers wanted us to know that Jesus claimed to be God and then did the kind of things you've got to do to back up that big boy kind of talk. Like making paralyzed men walk out of buildings with a hole in the roof. <laughs> okay, Christian, 
this is all very interesting, you might say, but so what? What difference does all this make to me? Well, you might identify as being in one of two camps. You might already see Jesus as God. Uh, you might call yourself a follower of his. Uh, you've been on your journey uh, of faith to come to a place where you're very comfortable. Jesus is who he says he is. Or you may be exploring Jesus' claims, exploring Christianity altogether even. Listen, in these last few minutes, I'd like to pull out some things for those of us who are comfortable already that Jesus is who he says he is. Uh, and I'd invite those of you who are exploring faith to listen in and weigh it for yourself. But I am fully aware that, uh, well, let me address the elephant in the room. Some of you may be, like me, naturally sceptical about miracles and the like. And I, sadly, I have not got time to go into a deep dive on miracles in the Bible. Uh, but let me encourage you, if you are uncomfortable at the notion of a miracle healing being regarded as what really happened, remember, it's not the focus of the passage. The heart of this is that Jesus claimed to be God and there are billions of people who have come to a personal belief of that as reality. But such a journey is an individual one for each of us to walk and to come to such a conclusion. So perhaps you're wrestling with wanting to know more about faith and, and, and this Jesus. Is he really who he said he is? Well, chat to your Christian friends about it. Grill them. Ask them your best questions. Christians, don't be scared of questions. Oh, they are so good. But the simple fact is that many people here have experienced changed lives because they did the work to decide if Jesus is worth following for them. They read the books, they asked the questions, and, and they, they prayed, they sought answers of God and his people, and they asked Christ to make himself real for them in their lives. And then they stepped out in considered, thoughtful, reasonable faith to follow him. Now, I will say I'm up for a chat after the service if you've got more questions about what it means for you to follow Jesus. And uh, I'll, I'll answer with what I've got. <laughs> okay, church, so what are you and I to take out there with us as a result of reading this? You know that in following Jesus, the Bible says that we are spiritually adopted into the family of God. Yeah, that's why the Bible calls followers of Jesus children of God. Now, what does Jesus call the paralyzed man? Son. And what happens next? He is paralyzed no more. St. Augustine wrote that every sinner, as all of us, none of us are perfect, experiences a sort of inward paralysis. I dare say each one of us in this room has felt paralyzed at times to be able to do the right thing or, or, or to not do the wrong thing. <laughs> The Apostle Paul, look in the, in the book of Romans, he writes, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. We all have made mistakes and can think of people that we've hurt, wrong words that we've said, finding ourselves incapable of doing what we know we should do. 
paralyzed in our sins. But this paralyzed man experiences forgiveness of sins and is made free. This is the way of the God of the Bible. St. Bede, right back in the 8th century now, he saw this clearly in the text because he wrote, and this is a quote, Christ's wonderful humility calls this man despised, weak, this is a great phrase, and with all the joints of his limbs unstrung. He calls him a son when the priests did not deign to touch him. Or at least, he therefore calls him a son because his sins are forgiven him. Jesus was murdered on a cross for his blasphemy, for the claim that he was God and that he could forgive sins. That's why he killed him. And in that death, in that sacrifice, the Bible says that he forgave the sins of the world, making a way for each of us to become children of God. His death freed us from the, the paralyzing effects of our wrongdoings when we step into the way of life that he himself modeled for us that, that we can read about in the Gospels. I'm sure in a room full of people like this that some of us feel controlled by the sins in our life. Uh, addictions, patterns of behavior or thought that we can't seem to break. The forgiveness of our sins by Christ when we come to faith in him is part of the breaking of their power over us. And it's part of our spiritual healing process. Some of us in the room may feel sad that we have experienced this forgiveness in our lives. We've been Christians maybe many years perhaps, but not being perfect, we still end up with sin in our life. Can I just remind you that <laughs> I've got two boys. You probably heard them this morning. Um, when one of my sons messes up and sins, he doesn't stop being my son and I don't stop loving him. Once he's my son, he's always my son. I will never leave nor forsake him. And neither does God, our Heavenly Father, leave nor forsake any one of us as his children. However, it's not okay that my boy keeps messing up. And I will help and strengthen him to deal with his negative behavior, but he has to work with me. And in the meantime, forgiveness is there for when he messes up. If you are a Christian here today and you are battling in your sin and you're messing up, know that you are forgiven and you are loved and you need not be paralyzed in your sins anymore. Why? Because, secondly, the fact then that you and I are made children of God through this forgiveness, it becomes a part of our identity. It's part of who we are. As children of God, living life in a destructive pattern, living life in sin, that's not who you are anymore, Christian. That is not who you are anymore, follower of Jesus. Your identity is that you are holy, you are forgiven in Christ. 
It's already a done deal by Christ on the cross. Now, Jesus, of course, he lives on earth with a constant pressure of who he was. Can you imagine it? The constant pressure to back up his words with his actions. Now, maybe you've shared at work who you are, yeah, a Christian, and now you're feeling the pressure of that. Or maybe at school or uni or whatever. Big pressures to live up to who you say you are. As followers of Jesus, it's no wonder that we're going to have to manage the pressure that comes for our actions to match up to our claims. Why? We are people who claim that God exists and that Jesus has made a difference in our lives. Of course people are watching to see, well, do their actions match up to those kind of claims? (laughs) They have a big boy claims to be making. So, how are we to deal with it then and be people whose actions match up to our words? It's a simple answer, actually. We can copy Jesus. We can copy him who modelled how to do this. And the heart of it is this. For Jesus, he prioritised his relationship with his heavenly Father through the Spirit above everything. When it's the same for you and I, we will have no problem being people of integrity. I'll end with a bit of John Calvin. Why not? The reformer. He wrote this in the 1500s. The gospel is teaching intended not for the tongue, but for life. Unlike other disciplines, it involves more than just the mind and the memory. It must take full possession of the soul and have its seat and home deep in the heart. Otherwise, it is not really taken in. To bear fruit and to be profitable, what is taught must lodge in the heart and demonstrate its power in our lives. More than that, it must transform us so that its nature becomes ours. Friends, being a follower of Christ is more than just lip service. (laughs) There's no integrity in that. The following of Christ is to permeate every area of our lives and move us towards actions that will be those of honouring God. As we pray, as we read scripture, as we spend time with other followers, we build a life of integrity on the back of the fact that we're forgiven and loved, safe in the knowledge that we follow a guy who modelled integrity in every way because his actions matched his words. He is the one who claimed to be God and backed it up enough that billions of people have called him God. You and I have the choice to trust daily that we are children of God, that we are forgiven, that we are freed from the mistakes that have paralyzed us in the past and that have defined who we are and move forward, live in lives of integrity because we love the God who loved us first and that we love him 
more than anything. Let's pray. Oh, Holy Spirit, would you move our hearts to lay a hold of the truth that we would be so caught up in how we have been loved by you that we would experience the freedom bought for us by Jesus' death on the cross and that we'd experience that freedom, Lord, in every area of our lives. I pray that we would have confidence. You are the person that we can trust, the person we can follow.